Welcome to Practically Healthy by Dr. Melina. I'm your host, Dr. Melina Jampolis, and I'm a board-certified physician nutrition specialist. And I started this podcast to take the latest science and really help you figure out what you should do, can do, and eventually will do when it comes to food, fitness, and everything that's involved with helping you become the best version of yourself. My guest today, I have known, uh, how shall we say, indirectly, as we, we talked about, or we've worked in parallel, I think, for for probably nearly a decade. But this is the first time that we are face-to-face in the virtual world. And uh, I think you're going to be very excited. But I want I don't usually go so much into physicians' backgrounds, but this is really important because I think you need to understand how long... Uh, his involvement has been in this field and how passionate he is. Um, Dr. David Katz has a master's in public health uh, and a lot of other letters after his name, which I'm not sure what they mean, but he is a specialist like me in internal medicine, but also in preventative medicine, public health and lifestyle medicine with a particular interest in nutrition and expertise, which is where we bond. Um, And he was the director for many, many years from 1998 to 2019. So like me, I think before nutrition and prevention was cool, uh, I started in, you know, 1999 when it wasn't really a thing for doctors. Um, Past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which is just a wonderful holistic approach to health, founder of the True Health Initiative, which I'm actually a member of, which is really about getting the right information out to the public, uh, the media of which I am also a part of that, but I struggle to get the message that isn't necessarily headline grabbing. Um, and lots of other things, lots of awards, teaching and writing, uh, 200 plus papers, multiple patents, co-authored or authored 19 books. So Dr. Katz, Thank you so much for joining me on Practically Healthy today. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's such a pleasure to be with you, Melina. And as we were saying to one another before we hit record, uh, sort of incredible that this is this is the first opportunity to be face-to-face. And, and uh, I'm glad the podcast offered us an excuse to do that. It's, it's a real pleasure. And it's going to be more fun to meet in person. And hopefully we can do some horseback riding together because I know you're very passionate about that. And uh, but that that speaks to the lifestyle aspect of it. As hard as you work, I'm sure for you getting out in nature. I was just talking about this yesterday with everything that's happening in the world can really be therapeutic. And so so can animals for me. I mean, my right now I don't have horses, but I have dogs. And I think that's part of the whole equation. And so you you're living you're living what you what you preached, which I think is wonderful. For sure. Um, so really a few things to say about it. First of all, uh, in terms of dogs, I have three. And this one, that's Barley, uh, on the chair behind me. Uh, we are a package deal because she doesn't leave my side for the most part. So you want me on a podcast, you get a twofer. <laughs> uh, so we have three dogs and I, and I have two horses. Now, uh, the first thing to say is I'm privileged, right? I mean, not everybody can have three dogs, uh, let alone three dogs and two horses and the, and the space to keep them. We have a beautiful property that abuts hundreds of acres of wood. So it's, it's heaven for the dogs. My horses are five minutes away on a beautiful farm. That, that's a, that's an incredible privilege. So it, it obviously the bar doesn't need to be set nearly so high to take advantage of, of being outside, being with friends who have four legs apiece um, and, and deriving incredible benefits from the bottom. I mean, the, the pure, simple, innocent love 
of other animals that, that doesn't come with the encumbered agendas of, of Homo sapiens. It, it's incredibly freeing and, and restorative, I think. Um, I, I, I love them so much and I love the innocence of them. And my wife and I have raised five kids to adulthood and they're, they're all out of the house, but you know, the, the, the dogs are our babies now and, and they give back that sweet, innocent, simple, restorative love. It's incredible. And, and, it, and it's a privilege to have them as members of the family. Um, and, and then, in, you know, in terms of recreation and, and being out in nature, two things to say. I mean, first, I've gotten better as, at it as I've gotten older. I mean, there were many, many years I, I had almost none. Um, and on the one hand, I sort of regret it. But on the other, all those nice things you said about me during the intro, people should realize, you know, that's a combination of, of putting in the world work and and living through the years right it's it's the years and the mileage and so it was a lot of work for a lot of years so those of us who have uh, bios with a lot in them we tend to be older <laughs> so yeah we worked hard um and sometimes too hard and i you know i look back at some of those years and wonder did i get the balance wrong and then the last thing i'll say is i do find nature incredibly restorative always how i love to hike i love to ride but it, it comes with an angst now. It, it, it comes with a, a poignant overlay because of what we're doing to the planet. So, you know, even when I'm out in these woods that I've loved my whole life, I grew up, I was born in L.A., but grew up in the Northeast. So I've, you know, I've known the New England woods my whole life. They're different now. You know, there, there are so many blighted species and so many invasive species that have changed the look of the landscape and so many sick trees. So, you know, we, we see the effects of climate change and environmental blight up close and personal now it's no longer a, a you know a remote or abstruse concept it, it's it's in our faces all the time and i i struggle you know i think we'll talk a bit about balance because one of the practical elements in, in health promotion is is finding the right balance in your life between the the big and the small the near and the far the the vast ambition and the intimate and um and one of the balances i struggle with is my love of nature and not always feeling the sadness uh, about what we're doing to her. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I work very hard to relish what's here, do everything I can to help protect what we have left and ideally restore what we once had. Uh, but, you know, we live now. We didn't particularly choose to be here right now. We just are here right now and are you know, living through what we're living through. Uh, so I, I, I seek out the love and, and the, um, sort of the restorative elements of, of being involved in nature and work very hard to contain how much of the sadness uh, I, I, I otherwise feel about what we're doing to the planet. You know, you bring up so many interesting points. I was making notes because I wanted to address all of them. First of all, the pets, I'm in complete agreement. I have three dogs as well um, who aren't always the most stress relief, but there is so much research showing that just having a, a, a pet can help lower blood pressure and, and lower cortisol levels, just the act of petting a pet for 20 minutes a day. So even for people, what I say from a practical standpoint, if you don't necessarily, if you're living in an apartment that doesn't allow animals volunteering at an animal shelter and then you get mm. a twofer you get the act of giving back and and right. doing something because i think that's a much neglected part of mental ha health mm. is giving yeah. i think um i don't mean i'm not as esoteric as you you're more of an intellectual but one thing i was given a, an honor once and i said you know 
for me, Gandhi said to truly find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And I believe mm. that that can translate to animals as well. Um, so I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think your working balance thing is something I truly struggle with, but I have really made it a priority. I'm an old mom. I had children later in life at 40 and 44, and I decided both unplanned, by the way. Sorry, kids, if you're listening, I love you, but if you're unplanned. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, but it, it's it's at this point where I'm really at a kind of at, at a very high point in my career that requires a tremendous amount of work. I have made a conscious choice to not let that overtake me. And it's it's come with its sacrifices. There's no question about that. Sure. But I think I think that is a choice. And in terms of the climate, it's so interesting because on some level, really being concerned about climate change almost sounds like a privilege because there's so many other challenges that we face every day, but yet it's so important for the future of our children. And if you want to do something good, and and even if you look at things like soil quality, how much that's deteriorated over the last 50 years, and how the fact that what we're feeding ourselves and our children just doesn't have the nutrient density that it did 50 years ago because of industrialized farming. So I think there's there's small changes and small practical things that we can do. I think I'm sure one of the ones that you talk about is eating less red meat. And that could be a simple and affordable change that you could do that all these twofers, I like to really try to find the balance between because otherwise, sometimes living healthy can feel like a full time job. And right, for me as right. a busy working mom, kind of at the height of her career, I can't think about all of these things. So what are some of the other things within lifestyle medicine that you think you've found you've really found to be the most important and what are some more practical ways maybe that that people can implement those without having to go to a meditation retreat for a weekend or things like that yeah yeah well so first of all um you mentioned the true health initiative in the intro and when i founded that back in let's let's say uh 2013-ish, so r- roughly a decade ago, uh, the the mantra was adding years to lives and, and life to years. We really we wanted to create a communal portal to espouse the fundamental truths of healthy living that we all agree about, all the experts all around the world agree about, but the, the, the public tends not to get the impression that we have tremendous agreement about healthy living, including healthy nutrition, and I, I want to amplify that. But I've evolved that platform over the years from just adding years to life and life to years to healthy, vital people on a healthy, vital planet. And, and I say routinely that we have some hope of being healthy, vital people on a healthy, vital planet, or we have no hope of being healthy, vital people, whether it's the soil or the air or the climate or the aquifers or, you know, one way or another, uh, we're all interconnected. And so we need that. And so, yes, there's, there's lots to unpack there. And I think lifestyle medicine and planetary health are very closely allied. And yes, if I had to pick one thing, I would say eat less beef or eat no beef and cut back on animal intake. You know, it's, it's, it's environmentally intensive. It uses a lot of land. It uses a lot of water. Sadly, because of factory farming, it involves a lot of cruelty and abuse as well. And I, I tend to look at diet through three lenses. I'm a physician. So of course, the first and, and in terms of my career foremost is what is the direct impact on human health? Second, is there cruelty on the menu because nobody should want that? And third, what are we doing to the planet in the process? Because 
we're going to need a viable and, and vital planet. And so are all, will our children. And when you look through those three lenses, it's a very, very potent argument for eating less animal food overall, but in particular, minimizing your intake of beef, which, which comes at very high costs in, in all three. So I think that's a good tip. And there are lots of ways to do that. Just, you know, learn how to do more things with beans and lentils, which provide all the protein you could possibly want and are fabulous in terms of other nutrient properties and very, very low environmental footprint. And by the way, when Dan Butner, the founder of the Blue Zones, talks about the one thing that is most alike across these five very different populations that routinely live to be 100 and don't get chronic disease, it's their high intake of legumes, so beans and lentils. Uh, and then I think you raise a really important point, Melina, that, that healthy living can be overwhelming. And in some ways, I've often worried, so I did sequential residencies in internal medicine, preventive medicine, and I often worried that it was overwhelming both for doc and patient because, you know, as you go through the checklist of all the things you're supposed to be focused on preventing as a preventive medicine specialist, your 15-minute encounter needs to be seven hours long. It's just, you know, it's just way too much to do. So, the you know, the, the, the providers can't do it, the, the patients are overwhelmed, and, and nothing gets done. So we absolutely need to look for twofers and, and economies of scale. And, and I'm pleased to say, I, I think they abound. So for example, in lifestyle medicine, the six pillars, I, I tend to summarize somewhat glibly as feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, and love. So feet is physical activity, forks is obviously our dietary pattern, fingers is not doing this, not bringing toxins to our lips like tobacco or excess alcohol. Sleep, we need enough. Stress, we need to avoid having too much. And love, we need social connections. We are social animals. Uh, John Donne said it well, no one is an island. We, we really need one another. So if you think about these as six independent domains, six silos, it's a lot of work. Okay, so I need to work on my sleep and I need to work on my stress. And I need to work on my exercise. And I need to work on my diet. And I need to work on my social relations. But in real life, it isn't like that. They're highly interactive for good or for ill. Sadly, all too often they're interactive for ill. So people are lonely and sad and uh, eating comfort food and gaining weight and not sleeping well and in chronic pain and stressed out and developing chronic illness and taking medication and developing side effects, which makes them sadder and sleep less well. And in medicine, as you know, Melina, we talk about circling the drain is one bad thing makes another bad thing worse and you just feel your whole health kind of going down the drain. But the good news is you can reverse engineer that. And, you know, the opposite of going down the drain is climbing a spiral staircase with your best vitality at the summit. And you can do that one step at a time. And each step facilitates the next. So, for example, let's just take one easy one. So being in nature is good for mental health. Getting physical activity is good for mental and physical health. And alleviating stress is good for mental health, which is in turn good for physical health. And alleviating stress often helps sleep better, helps you sleep better, which is better for all aspects of health. And okay, do we have to unbundle all these things? No. Going for a walk outside, ideally in a park or if you can in the woods, is all of them. It relieves stress. It's physical activity. It's outdoor time in nature. And you'll probably sleep better that night because you took the time to go for a walk. You just, it, it's not a twofer, it's a fourfer. I mean, you really, you no, just no, I'm going to add one more, David. It's also, <laughs> if you walk with somebody that you with care someone, about, right. that you value, so, then so you're connection. hitting five. 
as long as you're exactly. not eating, you know, a Twinkie on the walk, you're really doing well. And then, and then also, but I find that my patients who exercise tend to want to eat better because they feel better. Right. So actually, and it's hard to smoke on a walk. So I, I really think you, and can you do should, six right. out of six. You could do six at a time. I, yeah. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Because frankly, you feel better about yourself when you're active. You, that that helps you make you know, sort of more restrained, more thoughtful choices about food. Sleeping better helps you eat better. Managing stress helps you eat better. So I, I would agree. You're essentially potentially bundling them all in this very simple thing you could fit into your daily routine somewhere, somehow. And there are many other examples like that. So sleeping better helps you tolerate stress better. So you're doing two at once and managing stress helps you sleep and managing stress and sleeping better gives you energy, which makes it easier to exercise and exercising creates opportunities to interact with other people. So potentially that's the social one. It's also boosting your mental health and self-esteem. So it isn't six independent boxes you have to tick off every day thinking, damn it, you know, I've got another thing to do. It, you know, healthy living is holistic. It, it is a package deal. These things all come together and each one of these you do helps you do the others. And you're on that staircase now climbing up and feeling more vital. The other thing, I, I'm just back from a, a big health conference in Las Vegas called health, H-L-T-H, um, in particular, emphasis on digitally delivering health. So a lot of tech companies there. And one of the things that I think is is really important to note is that, that you, know, you really do facilitate the, the climb to the best possible version of your health, whatever that is, and, and you get to decide by, by taking these small steps, they sort of build on one another. But at the beginning of that journey, People may need to ask themselves, you know, why do I want to climb at all? What is what is health for? What what good will it do me? And I think all too often in our culture, Melina, and, and you know, you and I as physicians may be complicit in this without meaning to be, we sort of convey the impression that that health is a moral imperative, that it's something you should do. You know, there's somebody's admonishing finger <laughs> at the other end of this discussion. It, it's important to be healthy because, you know, it's something good people do. And, and I think we should just abandon all that kind of thinking and, and stop and ask ourselves, what is health for in my life? And what we often overlook as a culture is that other things being equal, healthy people have more fun. Health is a currency you can spend on doing whatever you want to do. You have more energy, more vitality, uh, more years in life, more life in years. You've got more time. Uh, you know, money won't buy you time, but health does exactly that. Time that's filled with vitality, um, adding years to make your lifespan longer, adding health to make your health span longer. So you get to spend it as you see fit, but having more of it feels good immediately. And and I think that message is crucial that if you go for that walk today, it's not so you don't get heart disease or diabetes in 10 years. You will feel better this afternoon. You you will sleep better tonight. You'll feel better tomorrow. It's, you know, we're a culture that kind of likes our gratification as immediately as possible. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I think I, the other... Uh, the other thing that we do as physicians, though, and what we do, what bothers me a little bit about the, the paradigm of medicine, and even it's from the top up with the government and the insurance and then the physicians, is that health is not just the absence of disease. So I love that you use the word vitality because just not having disease doesn't mean you're healthy. And, and what 
health optimization is is really what I lean into a lot. I mean, and and vitality is a huge part of that. Is is to how to help you live your best life, and that's different for each person. But you you do. I think that's a very good point. Is you know. Just saying health. I mean, I, in medicine, most appointments, that's why I left internal medicine. I, I, I did my residency through a Stanford teaching hospital. I took my internal medicine boards and I left medicine six months later because all I was doing was putting people on drugs for high cholesterol, right. high blood sugar. High, I didn't have five minutes to talk to them about not standing so much, not even going for a walk, but just not standing, getting up from your desk. And, and yeah. to, so I think this focus on vitality and health optimization, not just disease prevention in medicine needs to change. Totally agree. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I didn't leave internal medicine, but I did go immediately into a second residency because my feeling, and, and I, I have the impression we felt much the same. I thought I was learning how to be one of the king's horses and one of the king's men. You remember your Humpty Dumpty nursery rhyme. They could not, all of them, uh, uncrack the eggshell, right? So Humpty fell off the wall. They did what they could to patch him up, but we never restored complete vitality. And I looked at what was going on in the hospital. And thought, I'm, I'm one of those guys. I mean, we, we basically let everybody fall off the wall um, and then we can't unscramble an egg. And what I really want is to prevent the next cohort from falling off the wall in the first place. So we either need a lower wall or a better wall or cushions at the base of the wall or a seatbelt on the wall or people with better balance or all of these things. How do we achieve that so we're not in the business of trying to uncrack cracked eggshells? So I kept doing internal medicine, um, but I shifted, I, I completed my residency in, in preventive medicine, public health, focused on nutrition and lifestyle, and absolutely have been in pursuit of, yes, I, I can be there. I've stopped seeing patients now, but for 30 years, I can be there when you are acutely ill and I can be involved in that. But I, I want to talk to you about your kids too. And I, you know, I want to get to them and I, I want to keep the next cohort from repeating the mistakes that we've made because 80% of everything that plagues us, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes, dementia, doesn't need to happen. And it's so much better to retain vitality intact than to try and patch up a cracked shell, uh, which is what we do. And, and you know, I think stated bluntly, and I, I imagine you view it the same way, we don't even really have a healthcare system. We have a disease no. care system. And those of us who want a healthcare system are speaking a different language entirely. We're talking about vitality. We're talking about years in life and life in years and not just the avoidance of disease. And, and we look for inspiration to places like the Blue Zones where people routinely do live to be 100 and don't get chronic disease and don't develop dementia and, you know, at 80, 90 are, are still walking miles a day and living a robust, fulfilling life. And, and I see that closer up. My dad's a cardiologist. He's 84 now. And my dad and I will routinely go for a six, seven, eight mile hike up and down hills. And, you know, he's 84. We, we don't even think about it. I don't worry about him, um, you know, because he's a beneficiary of the kind of lifestyle we're talking about, always been active. Uh, I was the initial agent of change for diet in my family. Uh, but that goes back a long time. That's 50 years ago now. And so everybody's been eating really well for a really long time. Well, your wife is a gourmet toxins. cook, though, so you're lucky, right? I read somewhere uh, well, that your wife is a gourmet, or you're a gourmet cook. Who is it? Because no, no, you no, no. Have an yes. advantage. I, I have an unbelievable advantage. Yeah, no, we've talked about my privilege, right? So I, you know, I live in yeah. a nice place, and I've got the woods next to my house. But yes, I've got another great advantage, and and I fully recognize 
that that this is it's a real privilege. Uh, first of all, the division of labor. So you know, we had kids and we we had things to take care of at home, and I had a lot of work to do. And Catherine actually is a neuroscientist; she has a PhD from Princeton. Wow. But after a few years of doing that and juggling with parenthood, she said, you know, I'd really rather be at home and take care of the family and you go out and, and, and you know, fight the dragons out there and, and we'll divide it up that way and it worked beautifully for both of us. So I had that advantage that, you know, the division of labor and the teamwork. And then, yes, uh, she grew up in southern France. Um, she, uh, you know, so basically culturally a beneficiary of the French Mediterranean diet and an yeah. un- unbelievably great cook. And yeah, no, but, but here's the good news. Cause that, so this is suddenly sounding really unfair, right? <laughs> but you, you can have access to her recipes too. So at some point, one of our kids, uh, our daughter, Natalia said, you know, you guys should share these recipes, all the cat's family greatest hits. I mean, you, you've been working so hard on this for so many years. And Catherine said, great idea, and built a website, Quizinicity. So it's like Cuisine City, but with an I in the middle, Quizinicity. So great we'll cuisine We'll put that in made. the show notes. Yeah, we'll put oh, that in the show excellent. notes for sure. Uh, but uh, available for free to everybody with all the great recipes and cooking tips and videos showing how to make everything. It's fun. It's it, And it's, it's meant not for chefs. It's meant for busy moms like Catherine was with a bunch of kids running around and dogs yapping and somebody at the door delivering something and you know you want to get dinner on the table and and have it be delicious and nutritious and quick and convenient and not especially expensive and all that uh help yourselves it's it's great so yes i am i've been very privileged in the cuisine department i love that though but i i actually grew up in france i grew up in dijon for my childhood and that's so my mom yes so my mom cooked and actually french cuisine not only is it delicious but it is very simple um my very good friend mireille giuliano just joined the advisory board of my new company ahara because i really wanted to bring in her she just seasonal, which is very good for the environment right. and simple and flavorful. And one of the things that I'm obsessed with, I, I'm not sure if you knew, but I've written two books about the healing powers of herbs and spices. And for me, that's something with the blue zones that people don't realize either is mm. their cultures are so rich in herbs and spices. And that is such a low hanging fruit when it comes to health. You don't need to be wealthy. You don't need to be particularly good in the kitchen like I am. I have had so many kitchen miss. I am just not my mom purposely did not let me cook when I was young in France <laughs> because she wanted me to study to be a doctor. So I am still calling her like, mom, what is broiling chicken exactly? Is that a different temperature setting than the baking? Because I don't understand. So um, I love that your wife's uh, website and is free. And I, the French cooking, for those of you who are listening, it is not intimidating. It's not recipes that are 100 months miles long with all these esoteric ingredients. If I can do it, you guys can do it. So we'll all make a challenge. Anybody after this podcast, cook one of the recipes and tell me how it is. And I will too. And I'll share it. Maybe I'll even film a video of me cooking because it's always entertaining to see me in the kitchen trying to navigate these recipes when I don't know what, what's the difference between dicing and cubing? I really don't (laughs) understand, but um, let's switch topics a little bit. We have about 10 minutes left. One of the things that I think um, one of your newer projects, the the Diet ID, <clears throat> which I've actually looked at, um, <clears throat> but you think, I think this is such a cool thing, is that diet should be a vital sign. 
So talk more about that. And then I, I want to end by talking a little bit more about processed foods, because I know you've been involved in the NOVA classification as well. So those are the two right. topics I want to hit on. Um, so, okay. But talk about your thoughts about diet as a vital sign. How can we, how could we really do that? Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought this was important enough. I actually left academia uh, to become an entrepreneur. I, I didn't expect to. So like you having kids, I, I'm, a, I'm a late life entrepreneur totally by accident because I was really bothered by the fact that we measure diet quality so seldom. And most people have never had their diet assessed. We have lots of studies saying Americans routinely overestimate their diet quality, underestimate their calories, really don't have a clue. And we also have evidence, and this is courtesy of a massive epidemiologic study called the Global Burden of Disease Study, telling us that in the United States today, and in dozens and dozens of peer countries around the world, the single leading predictor variable for premature death from all causes, and the single leading predictor variable for all major chronic disease is overall diet quality. So we have this massively important indicator of health quality which we measure in absolutely no one. And I, I found myself thinking about the fact that this is like the world before the invention of the blood pressure cuff. We already knew blood pressure was important. We knew it was a cause of heart attack, strokes, blindness, kidney failure. But how did you know somebody had bad blood pressure? You waited for heart attack, strokes, blindness, and kidney failure because you didn't measure blood pressure. So you didn't manage blood pressure. You just waited for a calamity to tell you, ah, blood pressure must have been bad because it was just too hard to measure. The only way we could do it was with an intra-arterial catheter. Invention of the blood pressure cuff changed all that because it was easy, non-invasive, painless, quick, convenient, scalable to measure blood pressure. And it changed everything. Uh, whole specialties developed around it, whole classes of drugs developed around it, whole dietary patterns like DASH, dietary approaches to stop hypertension developed around it, lifestyle interventions. We know lots of ways now to manage blood pressure, but what we do is measure it in everyone. So we know whether it's okay or not okay. And if it's not okay, it's a cue to action for the health professional, for the patient. Everybody wants to know, everybody reacts. Well, shouldn't we be doing that with the single most important predictor of health outcomes in the modern world? And we haven't been because measuring dietary intake has been just way too hard. A 90 minute food frequency questionnaire. I mean, it basically numbs your brain and makes your eyes catch fire. I mean, by the time you're done trying to remember how many times in the past six months you ate, how much of what, with what, in what context, I mean, it's just impossible. Yeah, most people don't even recall. know what they ate for breakfast yesterday. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really it's, hard. It, it's a horrible burden. And, and humans are terrible at remembering details. We get it all wrong. So 24-hour recall, not much better. And multi-day food journals take multiple days and then have to be analyzed at the end of one level by a dietitian. So this just didn't make sense. You know, in, in, in 2016 is when I cooked this idea. But, you know, basically in the 21st century that we can't come up with a new way to assess diet that actually takes advantage of native human aptitude. We're bad at remembering detail. We're really good at recognizing patterns. It's a native human aptitude because it's associated with survival. You know, knowing who you know, knowing who you don't know, knowing when you need to be wary. We're, we're all good at it. And so I just kept noodling and noodling. I, I guess you could say like an oyster with a, a grain of sand, uh, you know, just kept irritating me. And one day I was on my elliptical working out and I literally had an epiphany. I suddenly saw a whole new way to assess diet, like origami in reverse, just unfolding. And, and a anyway, long story to follow that, that led to leaving Yale and founding a company. But essentially what we did was reverse engineer dietary assessments. So you can do it in a 60 second period and it's fun. 
We built a diet map. Diet type is on one axis. Diet quality is on the other axis. Now, again, I'll spare you all the details and the science, but we populated every cell of that map. So this type of diet at this tier quality with an image of the foods you would eat on that dietary pattern. And the way the app works is it asks you just a couple questions to know which part of the map to drop you in. And then when we know which region to put you in, we show you two images of dietary patterns and say, which of these looks more like stuff you eat A or B? And all you have to do is pick one or the other. And then we show you two more images and say, how about now? Which of these? And it's very much like a trip to the eye doctor where yeah, there's assessing your visual. Better, people. worse, yeah. better, worse. Which is, exactly. Which is more in focus, A or B, A or B, A or B. Exactly. Well, with, with that device, a foropter, you're using really fancy physics and optics in the machine. But for you, all you need to do is say A is more in focus than B, B is more in focus than A, and play that game for 30 seconds, and they have an exact prescription for your eyes and diopters. We've done that for diet. So in a 60-second game where you're just picking which image looks more like stuff you eat routinely, we just zero in on the closest possible approximation of your diet. We right-size that for you. And in that same 60 to uh, 120-second period, we can report out to you your diet type operationally defined. We have lots of cultural diets too, by the way. That's really, We're a multicultural society. So you know, there are, there are lots of different ways to eat. We, we represent all of those. And we can report out your, an objective measure of your diet quality. We use the Healthy Eating Index 2020. We can tell you your servings per day, approximately, of all the different food groups and your intake per day of over 200 nutrients in grams, milligrams, micrograms, whatever the uh, pertinent units are. Well, and, and the, uh, you know, since I founded the company some years back, we've integrated into major electronic health records like Epic. So, Absolutely. Diet could be a vital sign. You could you could get a reminder about your upcoming visit and be asked to repeat your dietary assessment over your smartphone before the visit. You could do it on an iPad in the waiting room in 60 seconds before your name is called. But, you know, any which way diet quality could be in everybody's health record now. And it could be the same cue to action that blood pressure was when the blood pressure cuff was first invented. And we should be clear. When we transition from nobody having their blood pressure measured to everybody having their blood pressure measured, the medical system didn't know what to do with the bad numbers. Yeah, at that's first, what I was going right? to ask about. Yeah, they had to, but it, but that, you know, once you've got the information, you know, hey, these numbers aren't good. It was an incentive for the entire system to figure out, well, we can't just ignore this. We can't neglect this. That's malpractice. We now have a number we have to react to. Well, diet quality being measured in everybody. I think would transform all of medicine to a higher standard where diet gets the respect it deserves because there'd be many more referrals to knowledgeable people. There'd be more referrals to dietitians. There'd be much more team care. There'd be more incorporation of digital delivery systems and food as medicine because we'd be looking and saying, well, we know what diet quality ought to be. And now I know yours. You know, I was in the dark before I could, I could not, I could choose to ignore what I didn't know. I didn't know, but now I'm looking at the numbers. I've got to do something with this. So I, I think it would be transformative. I do too, except for, and this is a battle that I have been facing for now 15 years as part of the National Board of Physician Nutrition Specialists, which you probably don't know about. We are unrecognized, although your friend Tom Rafai was the one who introduced me to them in the first place. And I then became president and I've been on the board for over a decade now. So I'm very involved. But I think that for, for what your 
you've done was it, which is extraordinary to work. We need to do a better job educating physicians. Absolutely. It has to come to the top. It has to be then the, pers- the physician writing a prescription for better eating. And until that happens, you only have half of the solution. Unfortunately, it's a lot simpler to put, and this is the problem with medicine. It's a lot simpler to put somebody on a pill for blood pressure than it is to have them improve their diet. And that's, that's kind of where, you know, I've gone much deeper in the nutrition and my entire career has been dedicated to nutrition, but but really, you know, and making it simpler. And and my new company, Ahara, which I'll tell you about offline, because I think there's a lot of potential synergy. It's a way of giving people simple, actionable, focus on these nutrients, start with just these three nutrients. Because if I give you 20 different things to focus on, you're going to focus on not, you know, just like the lifestyle thing. And if we can integrate them into delicious recipes that contain all of the nutrients, we can really move the needle. But so I applaud you for, for, you know, building out the blood pressure monitor. And now we have to work on building out the implementation of that great information to actually make a difference. Because just knowing that you have high blood pressure or that your diet is lousy and not really knowing what to do about it, in, it beyond just generalities, because we all have the food pyramid and that hasn't really translated into better eating and it, it's tied to the healthy eating index. So um, I'm going to bring you into the conversation with my board to get the word out more and to get more nutrition training in medical schools, because I think that's going to be the key moving forward. But so let's, in, this is a great segue to healthier eating and assessing the diet. Let's talk about ultra processed food, because I think this is a really complex topic. And you've done work with something called a Nova classification. Tell us a little bit more about that. And maybe just some some really simple, actionable things. Let's end with really besides going for a walk in nature with a friend. That's your homework. Whoever's listening today, we want you to do that. Let's talk a little bit about the ultra processed foods, because I think that probably has the biggest lift in in addition to cutting red meat. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'll start with the simple practical tip. Whenever you're shopping in any given category, try to pick the thing with the shortest ingredient list. It's it's you know, it, it isn't always right because sometimes, for example, a breakfast cereal might be made from multiple whole grains and that's all good. And it's got a longer ingredient list, but 99% of the time in any given category, sauces, spreads, dressing, you know, if it comes in a bag, box, bottle, jar, can, the shorter the ingredient list, the better. And it takes you into the realm of Michael Pollan's advice, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. So the real food, obviously the, the, the true real food that's completely unadulterated has an ingredient list one word long, like broccoli or almonds or salmon. Or, so, so that would be my practical tip. Yeah, so the credit for the NOVA classification, which basically gave us an operational definition of junk food, goes to Carlos Montero and colleagues. Uh, Carlos is a professor at the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil. And like many of the rest of us realized that little by little, our entire food supply was being transformed into junk. But, but you know, that we just use that term in the vernacular. What exactly did it mean? So he developed a quantitative scale for the degree of processing and basically ultra processed foods, which use the kinds of ingredients no home cook could ever use. You wouldn't even have access to them. I mean, you don't open your pantry and find emulsifiers and artificial flavorings. So, you know, generally that is required for an ultra processed food. And unfortunately, that kind of thing 
is in a vast array of commercially prepared products. Now, you know, there, there's all sorts of debate about, you know, processing and if it's good or if it's bad. And, and, you know, processing is a process and there's a spectrum and, you know, cooking is processing and freezing is processing. So processing is not intrinsically bad. The real problem, Melina, as I see it with ultra processed foods, is the reason they became ultra processed in the first place. So processing food was originally about safety and preservation and extending shelf life. And, and you could argue that to some extent, you know, we just got carried away. But it wasn't accidental. There, there actually was a four-part expose in the Chicago Tribune going back to 2005. Uh, and more recently, the work of Michael Moss, whom this audience may know. Michael Moss is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist, author of two great books, Salt, Sugar, Fat, and Hooked. Uh, and some years back, he wrote a New York Times Magazine cover story entitled, this is the verbatim title, The Extraordinary Science of Addictive Junk Food. And just let that sit in. So science of addictive junk food. In other words, it's not addictive by accident. Somebody's getting paid a bonus to make sure it's addictive. Well, that's exactly what's going on. So with ultra processed food, the formulations are manipulated to maximize the stimulation of the human appetite center in the ventromedial hypothalamus. So here we are as well-intentioned health professionals talking to people about portion control and then sending them out to a food supply. It's not just the degree of processing, it's the goals of processing that's the problem. Food designed to maximize how much eating you have to do before you cry uncle and say you can't eat anymore. And you think about those Lay's potato chip ads back in the day, bet you can't eat just one. Uh, yeah, that was a threat. And and they were prepared <laughs> to back it up. And it wasn't just potatoes. It's everything. So there's sugar and salty food. There's salt and sweet food. There's salt and sugar and flavorants and texturizers all blended together in a way that was tested using functional MRI machines to figure out what is the most effective way to put the human appetite center into overdrive. And that's what we're up against. Now, you can reverse engineer this by eating really simple food. And that's why my one practical tip is the shorter the ingredient list, the better. The less that is blended into a concoction, the less opportunity there is for this kind of manipulation of how much eating you need to do before you feel full. I'm, I'm going to stand up and let one of my pesky dogs out, but no, I can still yeah, hear that's you. That's great. No, it's over. No, I, I think that's an excellent, it's, it's such an important point. And I think all, the word ultra processed food is thrown around a lot and some things, there's definitely a range, but I mean, I think there's no question that they've been linked to, you know, head to toe diseases, depression, and, and heart disease and diabetes and, and of course, obesity, which in of, of itself is linked to so many things. Um, I think people can drive them. I'm going to be quite honest, you know, as a busy mom, I eat things out of a box. I eat a protein bar sure. most mornings, but I make sure that it doesn't have artificial sweeteners and colors and that there's whole grains and chia seeds and pumpkin seeds and foods that I truly recognize. So I want the audience not to feel like they have to be perfect and live, you know, in a Kyria, Greece and only eat foods that they grow <laughs> from the land. I mean, it'd be great if we could do that. I'm not going to lie, yeah, yeah. But, right, but I but think your, your practical... Happening. Your practical suggestions, shorter ingredients lists, I think is is very important, but but also having some common sense. Like, you know, yogurt gets packaged into processed food. So yes, look for yogurt with less sugar added to it. And certainly not, you know, the candy yogurt that the kids are eating and things like that. And put 
a couple tablespoons of chia seeds on top of it instead of, you know, I, I, that's the kind of advice. So I think you and I are very like-minded in that. And I think that um, I could probably talk to you for another three and a half hours, but I try to keep my podcast to like 35 to 40 minutes and we've already got that's out 40. So let's make some time to talk again. Dr. Katz, where can go people go to learn more about you? Maybe some of your favorite books. Do you have a website? Do you have Instagram? What, what's your, what's your, what's your story? I've got all of that and I'm, I'm, I'm easy to find. So uh, Diet ID, which is my primary gig these days, is at dietid.com. And you'll see we do much more than, than just measure diet because I completely agree with you, Melinda. We need to do much more. And I'm eager to talk to you about how we can collaborate and support one another's efforts. Uh, at my wife's website, I mentioned quizinisty.com where you can find all these recipes and cooking tips for free. And then I, I have a website that's sort of a portal to all the different things I do, including the True Health Initiative, davidkatzmd.com. And I'm on social media, and there are links there to LinkedIn and what used to be Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And I tend to be most active on LinkedIn, but I have some activity on all those platforms. That sounds great. Well, thank you again. This has been a real pleasure, and I hope we speak again soon. And I'm sure we'll talk offline about all the potential synergies because I'm excited now. Have a wonderful, healthy day. I already went for my morning walk, so uh, I might go for another one just to put the icing on the cake. Excellent. Very good. Oh, I look forward to next time, Alina. Take good Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. I really hope that you found the information in this podcast helpful. I know I did, and I welcome your feedback because I'm doing this for you. So if there's topics that you want to learn about, something that you want to learn more about, if there's something that you want to explain further that I've talked about, please let me know. Comment on my Instagram page, send me an email, melina at drmelina.com, and definitely hit that subscribe button because I'm going to have great new content every single week and I don't want you to miss an episode. That's it for now. Stay practically healthy.